The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Amen. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. It's been a few weeks since we've been uh, in Exodus, but we're picking up where we left off. Remember, the uh, narrative is of the Lord leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, uh, leading them through the, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, uh, now to the, uh, to the Mount of Sinai, the mountain of the Lord, uh, where he has given them the Ten Commandments. We're picking up there in verse 18, immediately after the Ten Commandments have been completed. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. (coughs) And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. Nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray. (coughs) We pray now, Lord God, that you will reveal to us, by the effectual working of the Spirit, the glorious gospel of Christ, whereby sinners are saved and comforted and strengthened, And friendship with you is restored. Write this upon our hearts and encourage us, we pray, to greater obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you're able to remember anything of what has gone before us in this Exodus series, you will remember that as Pastor Rockin and I, and I think maybe Matthew's preached it as well, um... As we've, we've come to the law, we've presented the law in the context of salvation, just like I did in the introduction. We're reminded of these words, aren't we? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gives the Ten Commandments. There's that corporate element of salvation. I've delivered you, now live before me in this fashion. 
But that, friends, is far from the whole picture. I wonder what you think of when you think of the concept of the law of God. What effect does the law of God have upon you? If you, if you think of it on its own, the law of God. I suspect for some of us here, the law of God fills us with fear. Uh, because we know, don't we, that in the examination of God's law upon our characters, every last sinful thought, word, and deed is measured and revealed by that law. Law, indeed, can make even the Christian at times tremble. Or perhaps you're like the psalmist, who says that the law of God is his delight, and on it he meditates day and night. Perhaps it's your joy. Well, I want to say to you that I think for the Christian, especially for the Christian, the law should take us into both of those experiences. The law of God should enter us into both of those realities, the trembling with terror when faced by the law of God, but then because of the gospel of Christ, the law becomes our delight, our joy, our joy to do. And I think at Sinai, especially in the passage we've read, but going further back also into chapter 19, we see these realities the terrors of law and of God. But then the gospel is introduced, and we say the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. That's what we see, I think, in the text before us in verse 18 to verse 21. We observe that the law brings fear and dread. The law brings fear and dread. But then as we move into verse 22, we see that there is also a law which reveals to us the Savior and the gospel. The law brings fear and dread, and the law also reveals to us the Savior and the gospel. Think first then in verses 18 to 21, the law which brings fear and dread. Question 21 of the kids' catechism says, In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? And the answer is, he made them holy and happy. Holy and happy were Adam and Eve in their created estate because they were unaffected by sin, untainted by sin. Their relationship with God had not yet been spoiled by sin. And it's fair to say they were holy in that estate. Why? They were happy, rather, in that estate. Why? Because they were holy, happy, and holy. The law was written on their hearts. They had not yet broken that law or the covenant of works, and their relationship was with, with God was a good one. But when sin entered, uh, when they broke the commandment of God, they entered into an experience that they had never had before. They entered into a state of shame and fear. Shame and fear. They hid themselves from before the face of God because they were confronted with their own sin and the holiness of God. After that, God exiled them from his presence. Why? Because they'd broken the law of God. They'd broken the covenant of works. 
and their relationship to, to God changed radically in that moment of sin. And so, friends, did our relationship with God change radically, Adam being our representative. I want to say to you, friends, I think there's a similar experience going on here at Sinai. Before the law was given to them in chapter 19, we can go back to chapter 19, Israel was in a sense happy and at least somewhat holy. Look back to Exodus chapter 19. God says to them in verse 5, you're, you're going to be my special people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a chosen nation. And he tells them he's going to command them various things they are to do. Verse 8, and the, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's a kind of happy naivety and ignorance. They have no idea what they're signing themselves up to in that statement. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. They're happy. At least they think they are. But then God comes down on the mountain. We read there in verse 12, God saying to Moses, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And the manifestation of God is seen by the people. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled, trembled. They saw the smoke. They saw the clouds. They saw the lightning, the shaking of the mountain. They came face to face with the holy presence of God, and they trembled. They trembled. The rest of chapter 19 speaks to that reality. Chapter 20, where we've picked it up, says the very same thing. Friends, the law of God was given in this context also. Not just one of corporate salvation, but in the context of fear and trembling at the holy presence of God. The people are so afraid, they say in chapter 20, verse 18, they saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. That's how great their fear was. Not just that they didn't dare to approach and touch the mountain, they had already backed off. But they said, God, don't even talk to us, lest we die. A critical fear had come upon the people of God if God got too close to them and they too close to God. Yes, God had redeemed them. Yes, God had declared them to be his people. But that relationship that he has with them is still characterized by an holy separation. Them separating themselves from God and, frankly speaking, God separating himself from them. Friends, this is not the cozy and warm and at ease relationship that the contemporary church says the Christian ought to have with God. This is a relationship of distinction, not of drawing together. Think on these factors. 
If we read Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 together, the greatest impression we come away with is distance and terror, fear and trembling. Consider the data before us. Israel needed a mediator. That should tell us everything about their state before God and the character of God. They were too sinful to enter the immediate presence of God, and God was too holy to allow them into his presence. They needed someone between them and God. There was an inherent separation because of the character of God and the character of the people. They needed a mediator. But notice also the presence of God as manifested on the top of Mount Sinai. It's smoke, it's fire, it's lightning, the mountain is quaking. This is not some sweet theophany or baby Jesus in a bundle in the manger. This is danger. You trace out those ideas of smoke and fire, lightning, Uh, Throughout scripture, you'll see that's the presence of God when he comes in holy and righteous judgment. And the prophets speak of it, God's enemies being consumed by him in this way. Perhaps we can say this. Israel, like Adam and Eve, became painfully aware of their own inherent sinfulness. And the holiness of God. And Israel, like Adam and Eve, sought to put a distance between themselves and God. Why? Because they were ashamed of their state and fearful of God. In short, they experienced what our hymn says they experienced the terrors of law and of God. So much so that they would not even have God speak to them. Scripture speaks of other responses like this. This is not just Israel alone. Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God in God's temple, he fell on his face and said, Woe is me. Why did he say that? Because he saw the holiness of God and he knew he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knew his sin. He said, woe is me. Saul on the road to Damascus comes face to face with the risen and ascended, the glorified Christ. And he's thrown to the ground. He's blinded. We read the Apostle John seeing the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1. And it says there, I fell at his feet as if dead. Dead. Friends, what we're witnessing here is the first element of the biblical doctrine we know as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. There is a right terror to Almighty God. There is a terror to Almighty God. When we're confronted by his character, most clearly in the law, which reveals our character, there is a terror to God. One commentator of this passage says, when the Ten Commandments had been uttered and the full impact of what has occurred comes home to them, they are seized with involuntary physical trembling 
Moving back from the boundary fence round the mountain, they take up a position further off. God said, don't come to the mountain. They said, we're going even further away because of the terrors of law and of God. They saw and they heard the lawgiver. They saw him in smoke, of course, and fire. And they rightly associated the demand and the punishment of breaking the law of God with the holiness of the one who gave that same law. Friends, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Where you've come face to face with the terrors of law and of God. Think of Paul, persecutor. He's converted, and yet before he's converted in those moments on the road to Damascus, he's cast down. Fearful. There are many other examples we've seen in Scripture. Do you know what it is like to think of God in this way? I'll go as far as to say this. While our experiences are not all the same and should not be all the same, we're not looking for a conversion experience of one size fits all. But I want to say this, friends. If you're a Christian, you need a sense of God like this. This is a good starting point when it comes to a relationship with the Lord. If God in some way does not make us tremble, we've misunderstood who God is. Because the law given to us reveals to us just sin. And we know that the wages of sin is what? Eternal death. But the good news, friends, is this. God has no desire in this passage or in our lives of just leaving us in that place of abject terror. Because he says to the Israelites in verse 20, he says through Moses, Moses said, and listen carefully to this, really very important. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Do you see what Moses said to them? Don't fear so that you may fear. Don't fear in the way you presently are fearing God, but learn to fear him in a new and more blessed and full way. This is the fear of the Lord coming upon the people. At least that's the design anyway. The fear of the Lord which is connected then to the blessings of the gospel. The Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, I think verse 18, a condemnation on all men that the fear of the Lord was not upon them. And he's not talking about this Exodus 19 fear alone. He's speaking about a converted fear, a fear which has love and reverence and obedience as part of it. And really, that's why immediately, God, having pushed the people away by his holy presence, immediately draws them back to himself with what? Laws on altars and sacrifices. Look there at verse 22 following. 
We've seen the law which brings terror and fear. Now we have the law which drives Israel to a savior, drives us into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a strange and blessed mix in the Christian of this kind of terror, fear at Sinai and a fear which which is mingled with the grace of God. A fear that is shaped by the grace of God. I remember the day that I don't know whether it was my conversion or not, perhaps it was, under my father's preaching that I, I came home from church utterly moved by the preached word. And I went home to the, the only room in my parents' house with a lock on the door, which is the bathroom. And I locked the door, and I curled up on the floor, and I wept. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept, because I was convinced I was a sinner. But at the same time, I was filled with a sense of joy because I knew I was saved. Those two strange emotions of conviction and the grace of God had been revealed to me in a new and fresh fashion. That's what God's design is now in having appeared in the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and the distance and the holiness. He then says, but by the way, there's a way back to me in worship and in Relationship. He gives them in verse 22 a short amount of law on altars and sacrifices. He'll come back to these things much later in the Pentateuch and speak much more fully about burnt offerings, much more fully about peace offerings. But he wants the people to understand right here, right now, though you're filled with fear, you may still draw near to me. Look what he says in verse 22. Verse 22 is going to tell us of mercy, of a God willing to accept a substitute, a God who has ordained a way of salvation. He tells them, he reminds them, he's he's talked to them from heaven, and then he reminds them of the first and second commandments. Verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Before he gives them instruction about the altar upon which they would sacrifice and have their sins removed and fellowship restored, he reminds them of the basic parameters of how they should approach him. He says, first of all, no making idols. Don't make an idol of silver. Don't make an idol of gold. And between those two phrases, there's these little words, you shall not make yourself gods of silver, to be with me. That's the first commandment reflected. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself graven images or likeness of that which is in heaven above. And he's saying to them, here's the parameters by which you can approach me. And then he gives them laws on altars. And laws on sacrifice. The connection should be coming clear to us. He says, I'm the holy, the true, and the living God. And while my holiness pushes you away, my grace and my mercy will draw you near. But you've got to do it my way, he says. 
You can't approach me by your own imaginations, or even worse, in the manner of the pagans. Which is precisely what he says in verse 24, following. He tells them in verse 24, you're to make an altar of earth. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Verse 25, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool upon it, you profane it. He's saying then, don't make altars. Don't worship. Don't offer sacrifice according to the way the pagans did it. You can do it my way. You need to build an altar of earth. And if you have to build an altar of of stone, don't make it cut stone. That's how the pagans did it. Uh, Verse 26, don't go up to my altar by steps. Don't build steps up to the altar. That's how the pagans do it. Why? So they can practice their immorality before they come to the altar. Exposing themselves in nakedness and acts of sexual immorality. You shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. He's saying to them, you must be different to the pagans. In your worship of the holy God, you must worship in the way I tell you to worship. This is the only way back into my presence. To worship me by faith according to the pattern I have revealed to you. He's trying to teach them there's only one way back to God. And it's not the way of the pagan nations round about them. Friends, there's an immediate lesson there for us in terms of our practice. When it comes to church, when it comes to worship, when it comes to our doctrines of salvation, few things go well for us when we start imitating the world. should be basic to all of us. Few things go well for us when we start to imitate the world, adopting its patterns, standards, way of thinking. God is telling Israel, if you're going to be my chosen people, you must live as my chosen people, not like the peoples round about you. Israel was to be wholly separate from the nations about them in their worship in their relationship with God, in their doctrine of salvation. They are to be distinct, and friends, so are we. We're to be different. We're to look different. We're to sound different. We're to do things differently, even if there are common things between our faith and religion and other faiths. We are to do them differently, according to the pattern God has prescribed. Friends, we ought not come into God's house thinking we can come in on our own terms. Come in in our own rights. Come to him by any other means than the means he has ordained. To think such is the height of folly and of pride. But here you see God has given his people a way back. And he's told them how they are to do it. On an altar of earth, they are to offer atoning sacrifices. Verse 24. Sacrifice on it your burnt offering and your peace offering. 
Burnt offering and peace offering, what are they all about? The burnt offering was a sacrifice of atonement, taking away sin. The animal's throat was cut, and it was placed upon the altar, and it was utterly consumed by the flames of the fire. Utterly burnt, nothing left over whatsoever, a symbol that the sinner owes God a life and, in fact, a death. That's the purpose of the burnt offering, the meaning behind it. It taught the sinner that there was no profit for them in sin because their animal was utterly consumed. It revealed to the sacrificer (coughs) that God is absolutely holy and the sinner is absolutely sinful. But in God's mercy, he is willing to accept a substitute. The peace offering differed slightly from the burnt offering. The peace offering was about reestablishing relationship between God and the sacrificer because not all the animal was consumed. There was, in a sense, profit for the one who brought the sacrifice. And the profit was this part of the animal was kept and then eaten. Eaten by the sacrifice in the presence of God. A meal, dear friends, in the presence of God. We know what meals are, don't we? They're times of fellowship. They're times of blessing. Times of enjoyment, one of another. And God said, you shall have a meal out of this offering. Some of it is consumed because of sin. The rest of it you may consume. And fellowship is re-established with God. Vivid portrayals of the need to deal with sin, but also the re-establishment of a most blessed relationship. Two things Israel should have learned from this. Sacrifice was necessary to take away sins and to re-establish a relationship. But these offerings... The bulls, the goats, the sheep, the oxen. The repetition of these offerings proved that these offerings, these sacrifices, could not actually take away sin or reestablish a relationship. Think on this. In the history of Israel, there must have been billions of these sacrifices. I mean, the land must have flowed with blood. Billions of sacrifices. And the fact they were repeated day after day after day after day told the one bringing the sacrifice, well, this isn't quite working, is it? And it caused them to look to another. And this causes us to look to another, does it not? It causes us to look to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think on this, dear friends. We have a perfect sacrifice and a permanent answer to sin. We can say this in Jesus Christ, we have a whole burnt offering that Jesus was consumed in my place to take away my sin. We can say this. 
that in Jesus Christ we have a perfect peace offering. Again, he died to take away my sins, but died to reestablish a relationship between me and God. And we know his sacrifice is sufficient. He died once, never to die again. Jesus is not going to come back to this earth and die for sin again. He's done it. Finished. His work's complete in that respect. We don't need to add to it and we cannot subtract from it. It's done. There is no repetition. What we do tonight is not a repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Friends, this is good news. Any of you here tonight doubt faith? Any of you doubt Christ? This passage tells us that we have a perfect Savior and that we will not find any weakness in our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. This passage leads us with the rest of Scripture to understand we should have the greatest confidence in Jesus Christ. And friends, listen to this. It's not the strength of your faith which saves you. Did your faith die on the cross? No, it's the strength of the Savior that saves us. Jesus died on the cross, yes, and was raised again. And now he sits at the right hand of God Almighty because he's finished his work. We don't need anything else. We don't need anyone else. And the same great faith receives the same Christ as the tiny faith. The smallest amount of faith unites you to the strongest Savior. Friends, if you feel the dread of the law in your life, the worst thing you can do is say, I must try better. Because it's not going to work. If you feel the dread of law in your life, remember the hymn we're going to sing this evening. It says these words, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. My Savior's obedience, his righteous life, imputed to the Christian when we come to the faith, and his blood wash away every sin, past, present, and future. No sin left unwashed by the blood of Christ. You can't improve on that, friends. You just can't improve upon it. The perfect righteousness of Christ given to you by faith and every last sin washed away. Christ's life is enough for you, my friend. Christ's death is enough for you. And nothing else will suffice in the work of salvation. Friends, that's a savior who's worth having.
His blood cleanses us from sin's guilt and sin's power. Faith in Christ breaks the back of sin in our lives. And the great task you have in life, friends, is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your greatest task. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, live like you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we bless you and we magnify your name. Surely you are good to us in a most remarkable way. Lord Christ, we worship you and we adore you even now as we come to your table to feast upon you in the presence of Almighty and the Holy God. How we praise you, Lord, for your word and this sacrament, which tells us of hell subdued and peace with heaven. O Lord, minister in our hearts this very night that we might believe you and we might trust you and then, Lord, we might live well before you. We thank you and praise you, Lord God, for your great kindnesses and your abundant mercy to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the elders would come forward, please, for the supper. I think I've probably already said enough by means of introduction about the supper. When you invite someone into your house to share a meal, it's a sign of peace, isn't it? You're at peace with them. You want to fellowship with them. You want to enjoy them. They want to enjoy you. What a blessed thing it is to show hospitality to your brethren, to delight in them and they in you. God is now showing hospitality to us. He's not ushered us away from the mountain, as it were. And we've not backed off from the mountain. We've entered into the Holy of Holies right now to receive this blessing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead, ascended to glory. That's what this table is to us. It ought to be, friends, to you, an assurance to your faith. An assurance to your faith. And if you can't come to this table tonight, think on what this means. That there are those who are coming up here and sitting back in the pew, taking the bread and wine, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. If you can't come because of lack of faith, what are you waiting for? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and be filled. If you're living in sin, unrepentant sin, If you're at odds with a brother or sister in in this place, 
Don't come to the table because doing so is to contradict the very unity and the holiness this table speaks of. But we're all sinners and we all struggle with sin. And Lord willing, we strive against sin. This table should help you strive against sin. Because we've come to feed spiritually on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we handle the bread, as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we're thinking this, Jesus lived and died for me. That's what you should be thinking. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Jesus lived and died for me. My sins, not in part but the whole, have been nailed to the cross. And we bear them no more. That's good news. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. But the words of Paul ring in our ears. But let also the fact that Christ has ordained this meal for the church, for sinners, encourage us to come as we should by faith. That we might rejoice in the goodness of God. That he's accommodated to our weakness, not just given us the word, but given us a sacrament. That we might hold, we might see, we might taste, and see that our Lord is good. Let's pray. We come now to your table, Lord Christ, to do this in remembrance of you. You who gave your life and death for us. You who have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. You, Lord, who have been merciful unto us to call us your brethren. We bless you and magnify your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray now, Lord, as we come to this table, we will do so in reverence and in true fear of you, being reminded, yes, of our great sin, but being reminded of your greater mercy and love for us in Christ. Accompany then, Lord God, we pray, this meal with the work of your Spirit, working in us what is pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.